How's that? Welcome to you who are watching online and for you in the room. I'm grateful uh, as a representative of the college to be here with you. You all have been a, a partnering church uh, in multiple years, and uh, I'm thankful for you, uh, especially through this season of COVID. It's been great to have partners and friends, and, uh, and the college has done well. God has been gracious in many, many, many ways, and I wouldn't say in large part to the prayers and the partnership of churches like yourself. So thank you. Continue to pray us through, would you? I want, I want to give you one good report about the college, uh, even through COVID, except for last spring, when everybody kind of had to clamp down. This year, we've been in person the whole year. Um, Idaho's a little different than Oregon. I get that. But it's been really, really encouraging for all of us to kind of be, that, be together. It's difficult to learn and to teach in Zoom, as cool as that technology is. It's just tough. And so to be in person, that's sort of how we do it. And uh, to be able to do that, equipping ministry for leaders in the church, to be rubbing shoulders with each other in the hallways, in the cafeteria, outside the classroom really matters. And so thank you. Um, just want to say um, how privileged we are to have um, guys in the corner, gals in the corner, they're cheering us on and rooting us on. In 1862, Victor Hugo wrote a masterpiece, a masterpiece called Les Miserables. Is that familiar to you? It's a story of agony. It's a story of love. It's a story of, of fear and revenge and war. It's got misery in it. It's quite an emotive thing. It was put to, uh, to music in 1980, and then uh, since then, multiple film adaptations of Les Miserables uh, around the world. First film adaptation, I think it was in 2012. And the musical version of Hugo's story is quite ironic because think of it, musically singing through misery. It's quite ironic, I think. Uh, it's just hard to sing when you got tears, right? But through intense sorrow, through intense uh, emotion, the characters actually sing their parts out. Maybe you've seen that. So ev eventually others join in the song, and by the end, you know, uh, there's a whole big throng of people singing this ending hope, if you've seen the film adaptation. Now, if you know, Hugo's compelling hope was rather political. Uh, but by way of contrast, the Apostle Peter had a compelling hope that was actually rather theological. He, wrote, he writes this in 1 Peter 1. Read this with me out loud from the screen. Ready? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, for Christ followers... That which pulls us into the future, that which pulls us forward is a compelling vision of God's uh, work, what he's up to. And what he's up to actually overrides and supersedes and surpasses the things that we see in the here and the now. What's pulling us forward as Christ followers is something we can't quite see. It's something that, that is different. It's a compelling vision that's beyond what we see and feel and sense in the present. And that's what pull, pulls Christ followers forward. Let me illustrate it this way. Jeremy Begbie from Duke University, he was reminded of that sort of a vision, this compelling vision into the future when he was attending a, a church in a poor village in, in South Africa, a township there. He wrote this. He said, before the service, I was told that a tornado had cut through the township the week before and ripped apart 50 homes and killed five people. 
I was told that the night before, a gang attacked a 14-year-old member. The night before he was to get up to speak, a gang killed a 14-year-old member of the church youth group and stabbed him to death. And the pastor began his opening prayer. Jeremy Begbie recorded. He said, the pastor stood up and said, Lord, you're our creator. You're our sovereign God. But why did the wind come through like a snake and tear off our roofs? And oh God, why did a mob cut short the life of one of our children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we find ourselves living in the midst of death. That was his opening prayer. And as he spoke, at opening prayer, the congregation, as Jeremy Begbie recorded, kind of responded as only a South African township could, right? Kind of this response back to the prayer, this sort of dreadful sighing back and forth with the pastor and groaning. But then once the prayer was concluded, the whole congregation kind of began to sing. It was, it was rather quiet at first, but then it got louder and they sang and they sang through the tears and through the pain and through the agony of just the night before. They sang and as they sang, praise to God and how Jesus had plunged into their world and plunged into their misery and gotten the worst that life could bring. They sang that through because a sense of promise was pulling them through it, through the present. A sense of forward reality from their present reality was pulling them forward. The singing gave the congregation a bit of a foretaste of the end. Think about that. What we've just been doing for the last half hour. Or so. The singing gave that congregation, gives us a bit of a hors d'oeuvre for the main course. Begbie wrote this later on. He said, Christian hope isn't about looking around at the state of things as they are now and trying to imagine where it's all going. Christian hope is not about trying to extrapolate the future from the present. Christian hope is about breathing, even now, the fresh air of the ending. Let that sink in. Breathing in the ending yet to come. The Apostle Peter continues, shall we read again? He continues this, talking about this living hope that's kept in heaven for you, read it with me. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In the end, ready to be revealed. We have it now, but not yet. Keep going with me. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Some of us, I'm just going to take a stab in the dark, are going through some stuff. <laughs> Maybe not all of us. A majority of us probably have some things going on. You're kind of living in this life of burden at the moment, and maybe some les miserables, just a little bit, just stuff. And if your life is really sweet and smooth and, and things are going well, then there may be moments in the future that are just going to be stinging and challenging and tough and experiences of trials will, will test your loyalty. Life does bring storms, doesn't it? Life brings these trials of various shapes and various sizes kind of swirling around us, kind of confusing us, kind of confounding us, creating chaos. We lose our sense of bearing, don't we, when life hits us. And so in the misery and in the agony of today, it's kind of difficult to sing sometimes. It's hard to sing with a quivering lip and a quivering chin, a lump in your throat. Isn't it? Kind of hard to sing with tears welling up. Hard to get anything out. But when the moorings of your faith are kind of rocked a little bit and, and rattled by unplanned storms, you can sing 
we can sing. We can sing the hope of the redeemed through the confusion of life here. We can sing about the ending. We can sing about what's coming. No matter what chaos of life throws at us, we can sing in the midst of it because of this compelling hope. It's a biblical expression in the midst of despair. And actually, a brief survey of Scripture reveals that this is not an odd thought, that Jeremy begged me was actually biblical, that singing and storms kind of go hand in hand. Do you remember, um, remember Jesus? Remember coming out of the upper room? Latter part of Matthew and latter part of Mark, Jesus and his disciples just got done with the Passover meal, and they're walking to the garden of betrayal and the garden of struggle where he's going to pray for hours. And just before he arrives, you know what they're doing between the upper room and the garden? They are singing a hymn. What? And then Acts 16, remember Paul and Silas? They just cast out an evil spirit from that woman who was taunting them, and they're now shackled in prison. And at midnight, remember that story? At midnight, what were they doing? Singing. And then you go to Revelation. <laughs> you know, there's about 16 hymns in Revelation. You know that, don't you? During the emperor Domitian's reign, when there's this oppressive Roman brutality against the church, we see songs happening. Huh. God's people sing with a foretaste of the end. So what chaos is, is trying to drown out your voice? What chaos is trying to take away your song today? What Global chaos? I mean, the pandemic, how's it been hitting you? Um, I think especially, at not, not just of our country, but underdeveloped nations and how it's rocked those nations and their economy and their health and, and with limited care, how it's hitting them. But nationally, boy, it's been, it's been a challenging thing, right? You throw in the COVID disunity issue, you throw in the ethnic injustice issues. Oh yeah, a presidential election kind of get tossed in there. <laughs> Have we had a few storms of late? And maybe it's, you know, just media that you're tired of. I don't know. What about personally? What are some chaos points in your life personally? Maybe you've lost employment or you know somebody that's lost employment or somebody in your family has been hit by COVID or the side effects of it or there's anxiety with neighbors or friends or maybe people in the church that are really afraid of what's going on? Or what about college plans? That's my world. What are they thinking about the future education? Or maybe you have aging parents and needing extra attention like I am and it's an interesting chapter. Or maybe Satan is just in your ear like he does so well, that ambushing Satan where he just gets in your ear and he just whispers, you're such a disappointment. Doesn't he? And he gets in the ear and he says, you're so unworthy to call yourself a Christian. He just repeats, have you had that? Doubt and confusion. And it's just this storm. Satan loves to resuscitate those feelings of inadequacy and incompetence and shame and guilt and embarrassment and, and insecurity. And those things can just tighten up our throat, can't they? And just take our song. Whether it's a global storm or a national storm or just a personal chaotic moment for you. God is a refuge in life storms. He is a refuge. He is an unshakable refuge. We can rest in him. We can find refuge. And when life spirals and you got storms swirling, we can learn, we can learn, I believe we can learn to sing again. And you know, many ancient Psalms are songs of Israel. Many of, the, many of the psalms in our Bible are actually ancient songs written and sung in the midst of suffering. It's like a model for us in many ways, the, that part of our Bible. God, I believe, can write a song through your struggle like he did for Israel. 
like he did through David. In fact, here's one, Psalm 91. It's one of my favorites, maybe yours. It's one of the Psalms that, the, that promises the faithful believer that there's haven in the midst of harm. It's a Psalm that speaks about solace through the storm. The Psalm, I think, in my study, it's not a Davidic Psalm. It seems to maybe written by a monarch or maybe a warrior, uh, kind of just daring, who barely has escaped life and violent death and is still kind of exposed to danger. It seems to be that sort of a person who writes this Psalm 91. And from his own encounter with God, this, this warrior, this monarch, he compels us through the song that he sings, through the lyrics that he writes to find God and to declare trust in God because he's a defense in our storm. God offers this secure protection from the chaos that swirls around us and drowns out our song. So what I want to do just for the next few moments is highlight five metaphors that are in this psalm. Just five. Five metaphors that are in this psalm that this monarch, this warrior personally encounters. This, five metaphors that this warrior, this author, the, the, the lyric writer of this song writes that I think he experiences to encourage you, encourage me to seek refuge in God as he did and he found him to find his song and to sing again. So shall we just go through a few verses? Right out of the gate, from the beginning, this warrior testifies in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Two metaphors, I just want to land right there. The shelter and the shadow. The shelter is what it is. It's a covering. It's, it's a hiding place. It's a secret place to be concealed. Think of the warrior running for his life, trying to find some, some harbor, some, some shelter to be protected by the Most High. It's a great word. Elion is the title of God there. The Elion, the, in the Old Testament, whenever you see Elion used in the Old Testament, it speaks of this one is the most exalted one according to his authority. This is the supreme God, sheltering the supreme one. Uh, let me illustrate. When we, when we uh, my wife and I and our kids uh, lived in uh, southern Illinois, about an hour from St. Louis, go Cardinals. We lived there, and it's Tornado Alley. <laughs> so springtime this time of year is just like, oh, you're always watching the weather, what's going on. And one time we were watching this uh, tornado uh, storm, tornadic storm coming through the St. Louis County and it was heading our way and we kept watching it. It looked really maroon and nasty on Doppler radar. <laughs> it's like, okay, what should we do? And it just kept moving. And I thought maybe it'll go a little south, a little north. No, it just kept coming. And uh, just about 20 miles from, from where we were, we decided we would leave our secure mobile home. <laughs> that was the parsonage at the moment. <laughs> And we skedaddled across the gravel parking lot to the over 100-year-old church building, to the basement, kind of chiseled out of the stone, right? <laughs> and we, we huddled underneath the table right there, and, and, and we found shelter. And we went up the stairs not knowing. We heard it pass over like that, that you know, the imagery of, an, of a train. Yep, sounds just like that. And we didn't know what it was going to look like when we came out. The building didn't collapse on us. That was good. We came out, went up the stairs, and our carport, our, our mobile home was actually intact. The skirting around it was gone, but our carport, you know, we put our cars in, it was just like a piece of paper wadded up and just tossed about 500 yards down the cornfield. <laughs> and it was crazy. We found shelter in the basement of a building. It worked. We're grateful. You can find shelter in someone who's eternal, the most high. Can, can, we can find shelter there. And here's the thing. The warrior says, he who intends to find shelter in the basement of the Most High, if I can use that analogy, he who works at seeking and finding shelter in the Most High 
gets this permission point. You get permission to rest in the Almighty's shadow. That's the second metaphor. In the shadow of the Almighty, the shadow, shade cast by an object with clearly defined features and boundaries, um, usually caused by some sort of a light source. That's, that's, how, that's a shadow of the Almighty. This is El Shaddai. Heard that title before? This is the El Shaddai. This is the all-powerful one. Our troubles are not too big for the all-powerful one, El Shaddai. So you intend to find shelter in the Most High. You'll be invited into, you'll be given permission to rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This is interesting for me, <laughs> this image. The blinding light source of El Shaddai, the source of all lights, the cause of all shadows, has a shadow? <laughs> What? I thought he was the source. How does the source have a shadow? It's metaphoric. It's a metaphor. It speaks of being close and being personal and being in his bubble. It's where you want, you want to be in his space. And he's good with you being in his space. It's not a long shadow. I don't think it's one of those like late afternoon shadows like you're going to have today in the, in the 80s. What a, Eugene's always like this, right? <laughs> it's not going to be one of these 6 o'clock long, 7 o'clock long shadows. We're talking high noon in the shadow of the El Shaddai, like you're right there next to him, requires you to be in close proximity in the shadow of the Almighty. There's refreshment, but it takes courage to draw close to him, doesn't it? It really takes a lot of courage to be in his shadow. It takes a lot of vulnerability to be close to him, to hear him breathe and to feel his heartbeat. He gives you permission to do that. He gives you permission to step into a shadow, but it demands that you become transparent and vulnerable and maybe a little embarrassed. They don't have it all together. That the storm's affecting you. God embraces our hearts and he draws, when we draw close to him and in the shadow of his presence, we can settle. In the shadow of his presence, we can find anchor. In the shadow of his presence, we can find confidence again. My friend, Terry speaks about her husband, Tom, who went through a, Tom's this, this magnet in the room. He lights up the room sort of a guy. You know people like that? And he's always just this rambunctious, chuckling, cheering, loud guy. And there was a season where he was really confused and overwhelmed with sorrow and depression and chaos. And Terry, Terry was concerned. And Terry knew Tom was back when he, she heard Tom humming. Hmm. Oh, there he is. That's it. Stuff just gets in the way. And in close proximity, Tom continued to lead into the shadow. He leaned into the shadow. And over time, not quickly, over time, he found his song again. But he goes on, the warrior does, about his own personal experience in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, that's Yahweh, I say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, there's metaphor three, my fortress, my God, that's Elohim, in whom I trust. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping characteristic of God. God has multiple names throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh is his covenant-keeping, the one who is the lover of his people, the beloved of his people. That's, that's Yahweh. El Elohim, in throughout Scripture, is referred to the God who makes things, the creator, the one who's, who's beyond us, who's transcendent, the mover of everything, the one who is, uh, who's other than us. And so you have this really cool combo, the one who is transcendent and the one who is imminent. <laughs> The one who is far and distant and holy and the one who is in covenant marriage relationship with us. I will find that he's my fortress. God is a refuge and fortress exists as this accessible covenant-keeping creator. Refuge, it's a secure shelter. 
from a storm, like, like in southern Illinois. It's a place to hide. It's a place to rest. Actually, the word fortress here is masuda in the Hebrew. Masuda. I will say he's my masuda. It's like, it's like a secure shelter, uh, um, but like a high mountain stronghold shelter, like, like a protective place for, for a warrior when an enemy's chasing him. This idea of safety from an oppressor, that's the word for fortress. Actually, Masuda sounds like maybe you've heard of Masada. Ever heard of Masada? Masada is that ancient fortification on the eastern edge of the Judean desert. It's this, this fortress on top of this rock plateau. That's what he's talking about. Maybe that's what he's imaging. What do you fortress? Well, I, we, you know, we, we lock our cars in the parking lot, don't we? Some of you, many of you lock your car, lock your, lock your, lock your doors at night. You, uh, maybe you go to the gym and work out. You're locking things. You got a little master lock, put your, on the locker. We lock up our money into the bank. We want to make sure it's secure and safe. Consider this fortress. Consider the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. It maintains a vault. The vault was built in the 1920s. It's 80 feet below street level. It's on the Manhattan bedrock. This fortress has this comprehensive multi-layered uh, security system. It's a 90-ton, there's a 90-ton cylinder that's protecting the only entrance of the vault. The, it's nine feet tall, the cylinder is. The cylinder is set within 140 tons of steel, a concrete frame. It creates this airtight and watertight seal. And once it's closed, four steel rods are inserted into holes through the cylinder. And then clocks are set, and they, they disengage the next business day. There's surveillance and sensors and armed guards. And my question is, do you know, what's the fortress for? What are they fortressing? <laughs> well, only the largest gold repository in the world. In, uh, in 2020, it's just under $500 billion worth of gold. 36 sovereign nations have, have fortressed their gold there. Wow. We're talking over 7,000 tons of glittering gold. Um, 550,000 bars of gold, about 28 pounds each. They're uniform. The gold, the gold bars are unique, and yet they're very uniform. I mean, they're, they're uniform in rectangular shape, but depending on where, you, where they were minted, they're actually unique. So if the gold bar was minted in New York, the edges are, are straight. They're ed, no, they're just edgy, like New York. I'm just kind of like there. In San Francisco, if it was minted in San Francisco, the edges are kind of rounded a little bit. And if it's minted in Denver, the corners are kind of rounded a bit. So it depends on where they're minted. And each gold bar has a stamped number. You know where we're going with this, right? You're much more precious than that gold bar. God has named you, thumbprinted you. You're unique. Inhabiting you, God offers protection for you when you seek him. A fortress, when you need relief from storms and hazards that are swirling in. He's a fortress, a place where every piece, every piece counts. No piece is discounted. And every piece can find refuge and every piece can find its song again. In a fortress, we find refuge, not just individually, but collectively. And there we value each other as Yahweh values us as the creator created us. And together in this fortress, he preserves us. So we, we who abide in his shadow find this secure, fortressed relationship with God. This warrior doesn't give up though. This warrior encourages us further with these words in verse four. Uh, he, he will cover you with his pinions 
And under his wings, there's my fourth metaphor, you will take refuge under his wings. The pinions, you know what pinions are? It comes from the Latin word pinna. It's the feathers of, you know, if you want to keep a fowl from flying, you clip the pinions. But the the wings is where I want to go, that metaphor. It's sort of a foreign image to us today. today. Wings are like this protective covering God's favor, God's love. I think that's the idea, God's favoring us like his wings covering us. But in the days of the warrior, this monarch of Psalm 91, I think he would have understood pagan deities and their practices. Pagan deities used wings and they they create statues of, of wings overshadowing their king. So in pagan religions, the wings were actually something that protected him. So let me be clear. I think the author is speaking about Yahweh and creator. So under his wings, we're covered. Under his wings, we're protected. Under his wings, we can breathe. Under his wings, we can relax. We find safety. We're no longer exposed. And actually, I think the psalmist, this warrior, he borrows a couple of images. The first image of eagles in our, New, in our Old Testament is Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. God says to Israel, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out. We're talking about escape out of captivity. And then that famous verse from Isaiah, those that wait on the Lord will soar as on eagle's wings, on the wings. There is there's safety. And I think Tolkien picked, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, can I use him as an example? Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings the eagles come and they rescue the hob Frodo and Sam from Mordor. Tolkien had a biblical worldview, if you didn't realize that. He borrows the eagle's wings to bring escape, to bring refuge, to bring salvation. God's outstretched arms hold you safe. And under his wings, we can declare with this warrior psalmist, God, you are my refuge. Under his wings, we can declare, God, you are the one I trust. I am safe in you. All who take refuge in you will rejoice. They will sing of hope as you spread your protection over them. What a great image. Last one, fifth metaphor, verse, the second part of verse four. The warrior states, kind of matter of fact, the faithfulness is like a shield, a buckler. The buckler is like a rampart, uh, a, a protective thing. But the shield, the fifth metaphor, I just want to highlight. The shield, don't think Roman gladiatorial shield, you know, like Captain America. <laughs> cool dude. But don't think that shield. Think Think 360-degree sphere shield. Think like, think like a theater when, they, when you can get back into them. Surround sound. Do you know what I mean? The 20-plus speakers in that room where it's kind of, the surround is kind of all around you, consuming you. That's it. God's got our back, and God's got our flank, and God's got our front. He is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's looking out for you. From behind that shield or within that shield, Parents and grandparents, you, you can encourage your kids. You can model faithfulness and bravery to your kids when you're in that shield. You know what I mean? And when you're within that shield, you can model trust to your peers, trusting God to your peers. And notice in verse 4, the metaphor, that what forms this metaphor? The shield is formed by God's faithfulness. What is it that forms this metaphor? It's God's faithfulness. When we lived in southern Illinois where that tornado came through, that small church, um, Lloyd was our, was our guy who cut the checks and paid the bills. It was a pretty small church and he managed that. Lloyd's wife's name was Grace. Grace had Lou Gehrig's disease and Alzheimer's. 
So she was in, she was really struggling and, and, and was not able to always worship with us at one, in the years I was there. And Lloyd, Lloyd really took care of Grace. And I'd go to his house every once in a while because he's the business guy of this small church. And we would talk and, and I would see him feed Grace with Insure, a little can of Insure. And caring for her and feeding her. And, and through the years I was there, just because of her deteriorating state, she, she became hard to manage, angry, mean. Not, she just a bit out of her mind. And Lloyd did not want to send her to one of those homes. As much as he knew that it was helpful, he just didn't. He wanted to care for her. And so it got to the point where Lloyd couldn't care for her and was, was afraid for her. And so he admitted her into one of those um, care facilities and they were understaffed. Lloyd knew it. Lloyd went it. He would be the one to change her sheets oftentimes and, and feed her. And, and all along, she had no idea who that man was caring for her. And he actually was pretty transparent. He was older than I was. And he said, Derek, I know you're a young guy, but you've only been married a few years. I've been married a few more years, but that's killing me and breaking my heart. She wouldn't, I'm so mad at the situation, not at my wife, but I'm just mad at how this has affected her. She wouldn't even know if I stopped coming. She wouldn't even know it. I'm thinking about not doing that. I just don't, I hate to see her in that state. And I hate her. She doesn't know who I am. But he kept just rubbing his finger around his wedding ring. I just, but I can't stop going to see her. And so tell her dying day, he went every day, took care of her, cleaned her, so changed her soiled sheets. It's just what you do. That's faithful. Faithfulness is reliable. She didn't know it. She didn't know who that man was. Faithfulness is the long-haul, enduring characteristic of covenant-keeping love. You know? When there's no return for you, there's no good feeling for you. It's the enduring, devoted, sold-out love of God. And that faithfulness, just that reminder, Rob, just remind, being reminded of that faithfulness, that loosens up our vocal cords. He is faithful and that helps me wipe my tears away and his faithfulness gives me a song of hope to sing. And then the psalm, almost without much explanation, the psalmist, the warrior monarch kind of stops and verse 14, 15, and 16, it sounds like, it feels like, it sure looks like a different voice steps in. And I think it's God's voice. In, verse, in the latter part of this psalm, the mighty God Yahweh kind of steps into the song and he says pretty much this, to those who are devoted to me, who cling to me, who love me, who know my name, who call to me in times of trouble, he promises, I will deliver. I will protect. I will answer your call of desperation. I will be with the faithful in trouble. I will rescue and satisfy the faithful with long life. I don't know if he's meaning long life on earth, to be real, but long life eternally. He will provide salvation in the end, he promises to those who seek and cling and hunger for him. So what, what do we do with this? It's a great psalm, but what do we do with this psalm in the midst of life's chaotic storms around us? Well, those finding refuge can rehearse their story. You start rehearsing their story and being reminded of your story and God's faithfulness, then you'll find your song. And those who are around you that are oppressed, who are restless and wanting refuge can be benefited. The shielded share you know, the protected preserve others. Those who find haven and kind of home offer hope to those that don't know. 
in a tough day, we're still needed. Psalm 91, I think it shifts our focus from me to we. This warrior, he boasts, he boasts of hope in a day of no hope and no peace and no rest. Behind his shield, our trust grows. Under his wings, we gain confidence. In his shadow, we're compelled to live no longer for myself, but for him. Let's illustrate it. One more story. The Dorchester was a U.S. Army transport ship. It was a cruise ship turned into an Army transport ship in 1943. The Dorchester was leaving New York Harbor with 902 young men on it, heading to the European theater at the height of World War II. We're talking 18, 19-year-old kids. And you can kind of imagine the anxiety. You can kind of imagine what's going on because few on the ship knew actually where they were going to be going and where, which battle they were going to be deposited into. And somewhere off the coast of Greenland, in the frigid 34-degree waters, February 3rd, 1943, a, a U-boat fired a torpedo and hit the Dorchester and it began to sink. Instantaneously, 900 passengers were in chaos. <laughs> the officers on board, they, they did what they were trained to do. In the unlikely event, they trained to do it. They started helping these young men find life preservers and, and get on lifeboats. And many of them are already in the water clinging to stuff that are floating, trying to save their life. And they, when the lifeboats were pretty well packed, it was time for the officers to get in. Now, on the Dorchester were four chaplains. They were ready to board their lifeboat. It was about that time. There was a Jewish rabbi named Alexander Good, a Methodist minister named George Fox, a Reformed minister named Clark Poling, and a Catholic priest named John Washington. These men were on the deck. They were, they were helping. They were easing panic. They were, they were organizing evacuation. They were consoling all those young men, praying with them, encouraging them, getting them into lifeboats. And through the pandemonium, four young servicemen came up from a lower deck, and they came face-to-face with the four chaplains who knew the last four preservers were on their bodies. And so as they were trained, they took off those four life preservers and put them on those four young men and got them onto a boat. Of the 230 survivors, Brady Clark was one of them. He said this, as I rowed away from the ship in the in the lifeboat, I looked back and the flares had lit up everything and the bow had come up high and then she slid under and the last thing I saw were the four chaplain arm in arm, declaring, maybe even singing, (laughs) our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Here are the tombstones of those four. They gave up their life for four that were desperate for life. Four in their younger generation and four sacrificed for them. Here's actually one of the life preservers from the Dorchester. Let's just play this out for just a moment before we pray. If you were one of those last four, preser- last four survivors wearing one of these life preservers from the four chaplain, how would you live today? How would we live? You could live with guilt or you could live with grace, gratitude. You could live with, I was given life, I will live life through whatever life wants to bring to me. What a gift, right? Motivating us, gratitude and sacrifice. How would we live to honor those four? What would be the most thing to honor those four? Okay, now let's take this to Jesus. He took off his his life preserver at the cross. (laughs) Said, here you go. How do we honor him best? How would you love that would reflect him?
Here's how. One way, you sing. You sing your psalm. That your life would be a song that's orchestrated by the great creator, symphonic director, and he would direct your life's song for others to hear. As out of tune as it might be, (laughs) sing it. With the end in mind, may your life be a song for others who, who are tone deaf and they need something to keep them out of bed every day and get going. You live with a foretaste, if you're a Christ, with a foretaste of the end. Sing out of that refuge spot, out of that sheltering spot, out of that winged protection spot. Your life can be a song, not of misery, (laughs) but for others who are in the midst of suffering. Isn't scripture beautiful like that? May we be able to live that out. Let's pray for just a moment about that that you would write a song in our life, oh God, out of our life, seems ridiculous. Do you really know us? (laughs) We're not worthy. But that's exactly what you've done, oh God. Mighty God, Yahweh God. Jesus, you have created something beautiful and lyrics and tone and a symphony out of each of our lives and out of this church's life. This church has a song. Would you... Would you breathe fresh air of the ending into this church, into each person here, that we would humbly sing of you and the hope we have in you, that our friends and our family and people around us would sense something of you in us by your grace and your power. We pray that you would use us as we give our life away like you did for us. We are indebted for you, Jesus, and we thank you for being new with us and near us and helping us. In your name I pray. Amen.